Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, today we have someone that I think uh, we're going to be able to learn a ton from, and and not the typical founder that you would see on the hyper growth path. Someone that has done it the tough, uh, they has taken the tough path, which is really the the bootstrapping path, which is the toughest one. And I think that we will be able to learn a lot. So without uh, further ado, Randy Hitrick from TRX Training, welcome on board here today. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. So before your entrepreneurial journey kick off, uh, Randy, you were a Navy SEAL officer for 14 years, which is uh, really unbelievable. What were some of your biggest learnings during this experience? Oh, man. Well, just about everything that I uh, have learned about business leadership uh, and, and a lot of what I know about entrepreneurship, I really learned in in uniform. I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, in in the military, you come in and from the day you you start, uh, however young and however junior you may be, you're in charge of things, right? You you get assigned things that you have to figure out how to uh, how to accomplish the the mission that you've been tasked with. Um, and there's not really any place to hide because the military is very big on accountability. So, you know, those lessons start really early. And then as you progress through a career uh, in the military, in my case, in special operations and specifically in the SEAL teams, uh, the challenges just get bigger and more complex. Um, You know, you get more resources uh, to your to manage and and logistics to manage. Uh, But the one thing that never changes is the level of accountability. And it turns out that, man, was that, you know, useful in, in bootstrapping a company, as was the, the lessons that uh, you know, anybody who goes into the SEAL selection program with the idea that they have a way out or they have a, you know, an alternative that's also willing to, to be considered, uh, they generally fail because the pressure mounts so quickly and the, you know, the, the selection process is so Darwinian and so um, uh, harsh that if you've given yourself a back door or a bridge to retreat over, a lot of a lot of times you'll do that. And I, it's turned out that that's that applies to entrepreneurship too, especially bootstrapping, where you're starting a venture in an undercapitalized fashion, 
uh, as a lot of entrepreneurs do. And certainly I did. And then, you know, you just got to go forward every day. You wake up, you move your feet and you get going forward and you never think about retreat, because if you start thinking about it, uh, you know, chances are you might decide, geez, that 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 respectable uh, salaried position at a steady company sounds awful good in the depths of your despair as a bootstrapper. Right, right. And and I remember I I heard this um, this episode that it was all about the warrior gene. And I think you were mentioning there how you were able to really channel the anger, sort of speaking, to focus. So could you walk us a little bit more through this? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think anger uh, has ever particularly applied to me. But yeah, I was on a. It's funny. There's, there is a, there is a thing that they call the warrior gene, which uh, I don't remember the exact gene set number, but it, it basically the, the thesis goes that certain people have a predisposition to, uh, to be comfortable with risk. It boils down to that, and and. Uh, there was a show on National Geographic that that basically uh, they that I was part of that where they they actually did, you know, blood test and determined, took a bunch of people that you would think would have a warrior gene and and uh, and did this test to identify it. It turned out I did have it. But ironically, a bunch of the folks that, that were on the show, you know, I think if I remember right, they had MMA fighters, they had uh, that Buddhist monks. They had a lot of different kinds of characters, and it was hosted by Henry Rollins, who was a big, you know, punk rock uh, musician. And a bunch of the folks didn't have it. Uh, that ironically, the monks all had it, which which was a little bit of a of a you know brain brain twister. And I certainly did. And ultimately, what they you know I don't know whether it's real or not, but it speaks to one's comfort with risk. And in my case, right, I've obviously done some, you know, pretty risky ventures, um, both in terms of, of, of real risk, survival, and also uh, just probability of success. You know, I, I went from, from being a, you know, a collegiate athlete to being a Navy SEAL to progressing through that, that uh, career and ending up at the special missions unit. And then, you know, tried to get into Stanford Business School as a guy who had no math skills somehow managed to make that, you know, come together and then survived barely through uh, through that experience only to then go launch a bootstrap start fitness startup out of my garage. Right. Well, anybody with much sense would not have done any of those things. And yet, you know, for me, it was cool. It was it was a life well lived. And what I learned about myself is that, man, well, I have a very high tolerance for managed risk, meaning risk that I can sort of impact the outcome of, but I have a zero tolerance for blind risk. Like I will not go to Las Vegas, sit down at a, at a table and put my money down because I can't control it. And, you know, I know what poker players would say, well, you can at some level, but I can't, I don't have the skills to do that. And so I have zero interest in gambling because it's blind risk and I hate blind risk. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And and you went from Navy SEAL to Stanford Business School, as you were saying. And at this time, you were about 36 years old. Is that right? Yeah, I started at 30, I guess, maybe 35 or right, right as I was about to turn 35. And then I graduated when I was about to turn 37. Yeah. Got it. And how did this transition come about from Navy SEAL to MBA at Stanford? Well, I had... Uh, 
all I ever really wanted to do in the SEAL teams was be an operator in the field, you know, uh, being part of operational units and getting the opportunity to lead uh, operational commandos in the field. That, that, was, that was what drove me. So I originally thought, because uh, I had not been ROTC, you know, I, I just, I was just a regular college kid and wanted to volunteer and serve my country. Um, I thought I was going to do four years and then, then go back to Stanford. I mean, that was my, that was my plan uh, in, in back in, you know, 1987 when I, when I first signed up. Um, it turned out, you know, after four years, I realized, man, I would have, I would have done that last four years for nothing but food and, you know, a place to sleep. I, I, I had such an incredible time. And then, you know, I got presented with another, another opportunity to go to uh, get a master's degree in uh, national security affairs, international relations at the Monterey uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And so I said, well, that sounds fun. And, and uh, so I did that. And then I, while I was there, I got picked up to the, uh, the elite special missions unit. And I, you know, went out there as a troop commander and spent four years there. And, you know, at each stop, I kept thinking, I'm going to go back to business school, but I kept getting <clears throat> more meaningful employment opportunities uh, on behalf of the country. So I, so I did it until the point at which I had completed what was my greatest dream, you know, ever, which was to be a squadron commander at that unit. Uh, and as I was promoting out of the field, it just seemed like a pretty good opportunity to uh, to take a look at making a transition. I never really wanted to be a Navy bureaucrat because I was always a bit of a pain in the butt for the bureaucrats, uh, which you can get away with when you're, you know, when it's like being the quarterback of an NFL team. You know, you can, you can get away with being demanding then, but the day that you step off the field and go into administration, you'd better be towing the line and, you know, talking the party talk and, and become part of the machine or it's going to spit you out. And so I decided at that point that it made sense to try to see if I could get into Stanford and to my everlasting astonishment, uh, they decided they wanted a seal on the recruiting poster and they admitted me. That's amazing. So, so what was the, um, just to shift gears a little bit and, and I'm sure that for the people that are listening, if they go to the gym, they probably uh, bumped against uh, one of your products. I mean, the, the, the one that I, at least I use the most is the, the one to do pull-ups. So uh, for the ones that are listening, if they see the yellow and black straps that they may be using at the gym, that's a TRX. That's a, the stuff that you guys do. So what was the spark of inspiration behind TRX? Well, I was I never viewed this this uh, this crazy device that I had created as a business. I, I was, uh, you know, in my first tour at the special missions unit was deployed overseas on a on a a, a, pro, a mission profile uh, looking at uh, piracy and, you know, basically uh, recapturing uh, cruise line or not cruise liners up. Uh, uh, what is the word that I'm, it's escaping me at the moment, the giant tankers and the big merchant vessels that, that were getting uh, hijacked around the world. And we ended up in a place with no, no gear to train. We had, this was a common problem. We'd deploy and then not have any, you know, you're not taking in big, heavy gym equipment with you. And so you end up basically doing push-ups and sit-ups and star jumps and, you know, the kind of stuff that, was being done back in the Roman Legion. Um, 
and that's all you had access to. And in our case, we needed to train to climb. And if you don't have a pull-up bar or a, you know, a pull-down machine in the gym, that, that can be a bit of a challenge. And I just happened to have accidentally deployed with my jiu-jitsu belt stuffed in my bag. And I took it out and thought, well, wait a minute, what if I tied a knot in the end of this and threw it over a door inside this little warehouse where we're stashed away? And I, I use gravity, work, my body working against gravity and lift myself up, and lower myself back down and you know, repeat. And uh, initially, guys that were with me on the deployment, you know, did what SEALs do, which is they mock you. And, uh, and then, but then quickly thereafter, they're over saying, well, wait a minute, what if we did this? What if we did this? You know, couldn't, couldn't you perform this exercise and this exercise? And so I, I started fiddling around with it. And when I got back to the States, I went out to the parachute loft and started, you know, tinkering with, uh, with redesigning this thing, making it a little better. And then, Basically, I had a, a buddy out in the parachute loft that would make these for guys in exchange for a case of beer. And he would call me and say, you know, hey, boss, uh, Smith wants me to make you one of these. You know, is that, it would make him one of, one of your gizmos. Is that cool? And I would laugh and say, yeah, sure, man, do it. And, uh, and that was it until I got to business school. And when I was at business school, Another buddy of mine and I would go out and train in the athlete training center. And over the course of the first few months that I was doing that, darn near every coach uh, that coached a team at Stanford would come walking up and say, all right, you got to tell me what this thing is. And 10 minutes later, they'd be asking me if I could make some for their squad. Right. And when you, you know, when you put a string between the the, te- the female tennis coach and the the men's line, you know, football lineman coach, You've got a pretty broad swath of humanity. And so I said, well, hell, maybe there's a business in this and uh, used the second year at Stanford as an incubator to kind of really try to validate some of these some of these uh, beliefs that seem to be uh, valid. But I wasn't really sure. And then, you know, I decided, well, if I'm ever going to take a plunge, time to do it is now. When I graduated, I took about a year and, you know, got some inventory built and uh, hired some part time you know, helpers and went after it. Nice. So uh, how much capital did you put together initially to, to get this thing up and running? Well, uh, I mean, I, I took my entire life savings, which yeah. unfortunately was not much as a government servant. I think I had about 50,000 bucks to my name, not counting the 150,000 in MBA debt that I'd taken on. And, uh, and I, I, you know, got some inventory, uh, made and I filed some initial intellectual property filings around the patents and the trademarks. And, uh, and then I went about doing uh, fairly quickly thereafter my first angel round going out to, I didn't, I didn't take any family money early on because number one, you know, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. And secondly, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to have a place to go home if this whole thing cratered. And, uh, and so I, but I took, you know, I, I went to friends who knew me well and, and friends of friends, uh, who were, you know, interested in making small angel investments. And I pieced together my first round was a few hundred thousand dollars. And then, then a couple of years later, I did another round for, for about a, a million, million and a half. And then I did a third round a couple of years after that for about the same. So, you know, I had ca- I initially capitalized the business over a period of three or four years with about 
four or five million bucks worth of, of angel money. Got it. But this was mainly friends and family. So you've never really uh, gotten the sophisticated, like big oh. institutions to, to finance. Is that right? Well, I wish that were the case. No, uh, yeah. it's not. That was how I got started. And then, uh, and then about year, oh, call it year eight, I decided that, well, <clears throat> we're ready to start to make some bigger investments in growth than I can make with, you know, little tiny amount of money that I had raised and, and largely deployed by that point. So we went and we, we did a private equity round, uh, and that sort of changes the game, you know, and I, you don't really realize it at the time, but, but when you decide to take institutional capital, it, it really fundamentally and, you know, I won't say permanently, but for a very long time, it changes the game in ways that you may or may not have anticipated. Got it. Got it. So over the life cycle of the business, is it the public, the, uh, the amount that has been raised? No, it's, it's not, but not you know, it's, it's, we, we, we raised North of 20 million <clears throat> in total. And, uh, <clears throat> and that was a, I think, you know, in retrospect, I advise a lot of, of early stage folks now, and a lot of them coming out of, out of Stanford because the business school is just down the road from where our headquarters is. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that I learned is that, yeah, you know, you can, it's relatively easy to go raise large pots of money. Uh, what's much harder is to deploy those pots of money in a way that, you know, generates a disproportional return in terms of growth and profitability. Uh, because what happens a lot of time is, you, you know, you think everything's constrained by your access to capital. So you go find somebody to give you the capital, but the institutional guys are, it's their job to financially engineer the risk completely off of their plate or as as close to completely as they can manage and onto your plate. And so, you know, I think that that it's it's a really big decision to go take institutional capital. And I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs give it, um, you know, the full diligence that they should, because once you take it, it's a lot like, you know, getting married. Uh, you can get out of it if you made a mistake, but it's going to be painful. Yeah, I hear you. And I always say that it's very uh, important to know who you're getting into bed with. So uh, that's for sure. So just going a little bit earlier in, in, the, um, in the story you know, of, of TRX, I, I understand that you started selling out of the trunk of your car in San Francisco. So how were some of these early days for you guys? Yeah, it was, I mean, we were the, I don't know that you get a, a, uh, I, I've actually called this venture a boot scrape startup, which is like a level below bootstrap because, right. uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get more of, of a garage startup story than, than ours. I mean, it literally did start in my garage. You know, initially when I got out of school, I didn't have an office. I had nothing, but I had an old sewing machine out in the garage and, you know, all the tools that I needed to, to modify gear. And so we started there and, and then once once I found a, a supplier over, overseas who could start making the inventory for me in small lots, I then had to go convince people that this mousetrap was worth considering because, you know, there's an awful lot of competing alternatives out there for exercise from, you know, push-ups and pull-ups to the gym full of equipment uh, that 
you know, in cardio equipment and selectorized plate uh, strength machines, all kinds of stuff. And I'm going out there trying to convince people that, you know, really what you ought to do is hang from these straps. And so the only way that I that I could do it was to actually put people's hands on the equipment and have them experience it. And, you know, people would initially, if I was trying to describe it, they would say, well, wait, does it have weights? No, it doesn't have weights. Uh, does it stretch? Is it, a, is it elastic? No, it's not that either. Well, then how the heck does it work? And I would, you know, I would, I would be really struggling if I couldn't get in front of them. But if I got in front of them, I had a hundred percent close rate, essentially. So uh, I decided that, well, the best way to do this is to um, get out there with a backpack full of straps. And I decided that I would target trainers because trainers had the benefit of, of several characteristics. One, they have a credit card, right? An early stage, man, cash is king. You, if you don't have some, some sales to demonstrate, number one, you have no income coming in to offset your expenses. And number two, you're not going to get any investor to give you any money until you have proven that there's a demand for your product. So trainers were a really early way for me to validate that, you know, they're valuing this product and they're experts in physical training. So if they like it and they want to use it with their clients, chances are it's valid. And, and that was, that was the line of logic. And then once, once I started being able to partner with trainers and make them money in the form of, you know, giving them great new uh, tool to use with their clients, well, then they became ambassadors and they would, you know, they did some of the evangelist uh, work for me, but yeah, to your point, I, I started in San Francisco, uh, driving around, making appointments with the fitness managers at every single gym that would take a meeting with me. And I would go in there and I'd get, you know, 10 to 30 trainers corralled into an area and I'd hang up, you know, a, a dozen straps or however many I could, I could hang. And I'd have about a half hour to either win them or lose them. And I must have done Man, if I if I did anything less than four hundred of those pitches around the country over the first couple of years, uh, I'd be surprised. Wow, it's an amazing story. And at what point do you realize, Randy? Well, things are are starting to take off. Well, we went we went down to a to a a trainer trade show called the Idea World uh, Fitness Convention uh, about a year after I graduated, and. You know, I had a little bit of inventory and took it down there. We sold out everything we had first day. So I had this part-time office assistant uh, come take all the rest of the inventory that we had, put it on a pallet and overnight it to me. Fortunately, the trade show was a three-day event. So the second day, I was basically selling futures. And the third day, uh, you know, I was able to fulfill those futures when the product arrived. And that was a big moment where I said, all right, like I've found at least, you know, I believe, and I always did, that this was a B2B to C business model over the long term. But, but the challenge early, early on is finding who is the epicenter, right? The center of your target zone. And you got to go validate with those people. And so I, I found that, you know, that I had hit a, a very fertile, uh, viable uh, segment of consumers in focusing on trainers. So that was, you know, that was one of the I'm not a guy who believes sort of in, in quote unquote, the tipping point. I think most businesses have a series of tipping points, uh, you know, and, and every now and then there's a big event that moves you way forward. And, and we refer to that as a tipping point. But I think that most most businesses that 
survive longer than, you know, a few years will find that, you know, you have tipping points every few years that, that, that change the game, uh, and put you in a much better place than you were. And that, that's sort of how I experienced it. Got it. And I guess uh, with success, there's always other challenges and, and nightmares that I guess an operator needs to deal with. And I understand that in your guys's case, that actually was fake counterfeit. So how did you guys deal with, with this uh, challenge? And, and I assume that it was obviously putting a lot of pressure on your business model. Yeah. I mean, and I, given that your, you know, your, your audience, uh, is varied Alejandro, I'll, I'll answer this sort of broadly rather than specifically, because yeah. I think, I think that, you know, I could talk for hours about, about the, the, the anti-fraud, uh, strategies and, you know, the impacts of that. But the big, the big point I think that folks need to understand is look at every level of a business, you're going to encounter new challenges. Um, hopefully you're going to encounter new opportunities as well, but business is hard. I mean, it, it, it is hard to win out there and it's, it's made doubly hard by the fact that, you know, you may, you may initially the challenge is getting anybody to think your idea is good. Okay. Then you, then you conquer that and you start to get some demand. Well, then you need capital, right? So then your the pendulum swings over to, man, I got to raise some money because it's a very rare startup that has more cash than they do expenses. And so then, then your, your next problem is, all right, now I got to get investors and then you get the investors, right? Well, then now I got to put that money to good use and I got to build a team. Well, then, you know, you get a team and man, anytime you get more than 10 people involved in an organization, you introduce the human factor, which, you know, is communication alignment, everybody's sort of individual challenges in their life, you know, and getting that team to, to gel together, to embrace a common vision, and then to, to really place the mission above every individual's prerogative, right? That's a challenge. And then you accomplish that, you know, and, and then about that time, if your idea was good, you got a team together and you start, you, you got financing and you start to scale, well, then the world's supply of me too competitors wants to come out of the woodwork and start to, because it just looks like it's such easy money that they decide they want to come in. And so they start trying to knock you off and they confuse the market because the market doesn't yet really know about even maybe even the product, much less who the originator is. So, you know, then you start struggling with competitors and, you know, what do you do with your pricing? And, and, and then in our case, to your point, Alejandro, we had, we had the extreme competitor. We had, you know, half of Southern China decide that, that they wanted to knock off uh, this product. And, and it started with, with counterfeits actually, you know, just like the back alley, you know, fake Rolexes and Louis Vuitton, suddenly TRX had fake TRXs springing up all over the world at a tiny fraction of the price that we were charging because we're out there spending all this money on education and marketing and our products are, you know, made like best in class, bulletproof. Well, these guys come out with, they want to use the cheapest materials that you could ever imagine. The products like fail routinely and catastrophically, but sometimes the customers don't know. They think they bought your product. And next thing you know, they're calling your customer, your tiny customer service, uh, you know, uh, group and screaming and yelling because 
quote unquote, you know, their suspension trainer exploded and they fell down and broke their arm or hit their head or, and, you know, fortunately we had had the foresight to have unique serial numbers on every single unit that we've ever made that can't be duplicated. So we were able to protect ourselves from the liability, but it still is incredibly distracting. Uh, the, you know, the competition of these low price fakes undermines all of your partners. So if you have salespeople, you have distributors, you know, you've got your website, you may have an Amazon channel. Well, all of that comes under pressure from not only legitimate competitors, but then this sea of illegitimate knockoffs. And it was, it was, uh, I mean, almost, almost put an end to us. Wow. That's a, that's incredible. Incredible. You know, it, it happens all the time. The, um, the copycats, if you're doing something good, they're going to come. So it's just keeping the focus and keeping at it and just executing and, and moving forward. And, and in your case, the, the growth has been remarkable. I understand the, now you guys are north of 50 million in revenues a year. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. And we saw after, you know, we didn't realize how much of our sales were being stolen by, by these, these fakes. Um, we, you kind of tried, you know, the initial advice that I had gotten from some of my, some of my mentors, you know, in the, in the business world was, you know, oh, Randy, just, you know, ignore those, stay focused and just execute. And, and on one hand, that's good advice, but on the other, I think it's a little bit of old school advice because the, the challenge with the digital consumer economy is that just about anybody can have a shop set up on Amazon in, you know, 15 minutes, right? And if, if what they're selling is fake stuff that leverages your brand, your images, your, you know, designs, walks right over the top of your patents and trademarks, well, what ends up happening is the online marketplace has, you know, algorithms, search algorithms that these fraudsters then bid on your trademarks. Uh, you know, they pay, they pay just enough to, to pop up right next to you when somebody searches for your own damn trademark. And now it's very confusing because the customer's looking and it's like, well, it looks like these are all TRXs and except this one from, you know, this third party vendor is a quarter of the price of the one from the brand. Well, you know, well, I'll just buy it from from this person. And so the the advice to just sort of stick to your knitting and and uh, and execute on one hand is good, but it's not really sufficient anymore because in today's economy, you will just be bled to death by an ever increasing number of, of fraudulent vendors if you don't address uh, protecting your intellectual property. Got it. Got it. It makes it makes total sense. So um, that's a very fair point, actually, Randy. I wanted to ask you now. So, so just to follow up on the growth, how many how many employees do you guys have now? We're around a hundred full time, plus or minus. Um, but then we have about three hundred and fifty outside contractors who we employ regularly, um, you know, on, on a weekly basis, teaching our our education courses to all different kinds of training professionals from strength conditioning coaches to physical therapists, obviously the personal trainers and group fit military fitness instructors. So that's, you know, that's, we became the biggest education company in, in the training world. Uh, didn't intend to do that, but when you have a product that nobody understands how to use, you have to either educate quick or die. 
And so we became uh, we became an education company, and that's ended up, um, you know, being really part of the TRX armor. Is that we we make trainers, uh, we equip them to make great livings, we help them make more money, we make them more marketable, and we we help them deliver great results to their clients so they can charge more and their clients never leave them. And, and so, you know, that's, that's now a, a, a core part of our business. Got it. And, and I believe that as the leader of, of a business, and, and obviously in this case, we were discussing the, the incredible growth that you guys have experienced, no? The, um, the, the person that you are today or the leader that you are today obviously has transformed or evolved over the years in order to really be effective with, uh, with your current organization. So in your case, uh, Randy, how, for example, did you have your level of communication evolve as the leader of a company now with all these employees? Yeah, I've, look, I've learned a lot of lessons and I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I, I really think that if you're not, if you're not making mistakes, uh, you're unlikely to succeed because you, you start out, um, very, very directive. And, and, you know, my style has changed too, because remember Alejandro, I came out of a pretty, uh, Darwinian, you know, pack of alpha males where I had learned, uh, learned my, my leadership, uh, style and approach. And, you know, I would say the folks that were at TRX early on probably experienced, you know, more commando style leadership than they maybe wanted. Um, but over time, you know, I realized that, Hey, I'm dealing with different kinds of people. Um, you know, leading Navy SEALs, you've got a pretty rare group of incredibly driven, capable, and resourceful people who are just steeped in accountability. Well, you know, you come to the civilian world and you find that the level of commitment, the level of accountability, and, and frankly, the level of drive and resourcefulness is uh, not always, uh, you know, anywhere near the level that I had been used to. So you gotta, on one hand, you have to adapt your expectations. Uh, you have to adapt your style to realize that, you know, people in the commercial economy are, uh, not, you know, they're not, they're not willing to put their lives on the line. Uh, they, they got a job they want to go to, they want to do well while they're there and they want to go home. And so I've had to learn not to project my same level of, you know, care and intensity uh, about the company and the opportunities with quite the same, you know, um, aggressiveness that I used to, because it's it's not a realistic expectation that's going to be met. Similarly, you know, I've, I've learned over time that, and I learned this in the, in the SEAL teams, but I, I, I've, I've come to peace with it uh, over time, which is, there's a reason why they say it's lonely at the top. It it's it's not it's not lonely because you know you got to be a jackass. It's lonely because over time you have to get to the point where, just like in the SEAL teams, hey, it's all about the mission, right? At the end of the day, as long as you're doing what's right for the company, you're being fair to people, and you know you're holding people accountable because that's right for the company. You can't get too wound up about you know if somebody you know, you're not Mr. Popular, right? Like, Hey, you can't, the reality is, man, you can't be everybody's best friend in life and, and actually get anything done. Uh, and someone has to establish the direction, the, you know, the rules of the road and, and then the tasks and deliverables that the team's getting paid 
to execute and and hold teammates accountable. So I've gotten to I've, I've gotten thicker skin, I guess, uh, Alejandro, over time that like, look, as long as what I'm doing is the right thing for the company and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm adhering to my principles of being fair, being clear, uh, you know, and, and communicating fully, then I don't lose sleep anymore over, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world is to be a critic. Like that is the reality. Like anybody can be a critic. And I just sort of say, hey, when you want to get out in the field and go after it and build your own business, then you come back and tell me, you know, what your opinion is of whatever this thing we're discussing right now. But until then, you know, I'm, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. You know, you can you can go somewhere. I Pursue your beliefs elsewhere, right? <laughs> I hear you. I hear you there, Randy. So, so now that people are using your product, like let's say Jennifer Lopez, Drew Brees, uh, Michael Phelps, or Giselle Bunchen, where do you see TRX in the future? Well, the big the big initiatives for us right now, uh, we've been a B two B business for three quarters of our existence. If 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 we just finished, I mean, I guess if you count the very first year of me driving around in my my Jeep with my dog in the passenger seat and a backpack full of straps, then we just completed our 14th year in the market. Um, and for 12 of those years, we were B2B. Our first customer was the training professional and our second customer was the facility in which that professional worked. But the plan was always to extend to the true consumer as well. And so, you know, in the United States, 80% of the population does not belong to a gym. And while I absolutely love and will always be dedicated to the, you know, 300,000 plus trainers that we put through our, our qualification courses and the 50 plus thousand gyms that, that we're partnered with, I also want to go out there and get the 80% of the population that is at home, you know, many of, many of whom are afraid to go to a gym. And I actually want to get them up off their butts, get them moving with our gear and our programs and our apps start to generate success to them. And then I want to, then I want to push them to either one of our trainers or one of our partner gyms, uh, you know, so they can continue their journey. And that's, that's creating really a, an ecosystem that all enforces, reinforces each other, right? The, I get, I can reach out and get somebody out of their house, deliver them some results, make them feel better, successful to the point where they're like, I'm ready to go to a gym. And then I can show them to a gym that we're partnered with in their area that's a great public service in my view. And so that's, that's what we're, that's what we're working on. The big new frontier for us is, you know, going to serve the consumers in their homes. I love it. I love it. So if you could go back to the past and I know that you can never do this and uh, give yourself advice, just be able to have that chance to sit down with yourself before you were launching TRX, what would be that piece of advice that you would give yourself that one piece of advice? Wow. One, I'd give myself so many pieces of advice that it's hard to, uh, to distill it down to one, <laughs> you know, the, I think the, the very first one that I would say goes back to this issue of capital. Don't be, I mean, one, remember that cash is King, right? You could, you could go out of business in your most profitable month ever. And people say, well, how could that be? Well, it's simple. It's like managing your checkbook. Right. You may know that you've got pay your paycheck coming, but if you go and write a bunch of checks right before that paycheck hits and those checks don't return money, 
then you may have all kinds of great things that are headed your way in terms of customers, but you're going to run out of cash and it takes cash to pay the electricity, the salaries of your team. So you always got to remember that I think as a, as a entrepreneur, first, make sure that your, your inflows exceed your outflows, like period. And then secondly, the corollary to that is, you know, raising money is one of these things that it sounds good at the time, but the people who give you money expect returns and those returns are going to come due. So one of the things that I learned the hard way is that get more money doesn't necessarily equate to better decisions. And, you know, you end up with money, you end up having a tendency to do more things than you should, right? Take on more things because suddenly you got money to hire more people. And every person you hired has his or her own ideas about what, what he or she wants to do when they come to work every day. So you, you, you can take money and actually create not only a long-term liability for yourself, but you can move faster. You can get further down blind alleys than, than you should or could if you didn't have that extra money. So I would be very, very diligent about investing behind growth opportunities. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, you bootstrap your way to a proof of concept. And if it works, okay, well then raise a little bit of money to invest behind that and, and make it bigger. I'd try to minimize the number of kind of long-term, what I call spin casting, right? These long-term casts out into the pond of the future that are very expensive, that require people to support, but that may never bring a fish back in. And that money's just gone at the bottom of the ocean, right? But guess what's not gone? The fact that you owe a return on that money. So, so I would say try to live within your means uh, and grow organically rather than go leverage yourself, you know, whether it's equity money or whether it's debt, doesn't really matter, on speculative growth because it's, it's riskier than you could ever imagine. Got it. So, Randy, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Well, so our, uh, I'd love it if all, if all your folks went and checked us out at trxtraining.com because uh, we are all about helping you make your body your machine. And, uh, and then if they want to follow me, all my handles are at Randy Hetrick. The, the company's uh, social uh, is at trxtraining. And, you know, we, we would love to, uh, to make some new friends and bring you into the black and yellow universe. Amazing. Well, Randy, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And best of luck to any and all of your folks that are either thinking about starting a business or are neck deep in the joy of it already. I wish them all great luck. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.